Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a teacher. I'm an exercise physiologist and sports nutritionist, and uh, once upon a time, I was a competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, a powerlifter, strength coach at Strike Guild, and formerly 293 pounds like four weeks ago, now I'm 263. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Disappearing. 263 this morning. Unreal. Wow. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm exercise physiologist. Do a whole bunch of other stuff. I was in Baja, Mexico last week, so I wasn't on due to El Internet. No, no bueno. But I'm <laughs> back on, and I'm in Vancouver doing a talk uh, for two days here on intermittent fasting, ketones, and carbohydrates. So it's going to be fun. Hot topic. Yeah. Yeah. You know when you, you guys when we start. I'm always the straight man. You know, I always say, like, I'm a teacher, I'm a nutritionist. You guys always sprinkle in something funny. <laughs> That's all be boring. I gotta keep it entertaining. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Phil feels, you know, like the body weight yo yo. You're God knows yeah. where, hacking your way through the jungle like Indiana Jones. And yep. I don't know. Okay. All right. Uh, we are going to start with news and mail, everyone. And then our topic of the day is essentially going to be what have you eaten or supplemented this past week? Uh, I think the idea is to give some insight because the three of us are all, at, you know, doing very different things. But how are we doing it? And then also that listeners can maybe think about themselves. You know, what have you purposely eaten or supplemented this week, and why? It's almost just sort of a spot check, you know, on on what you're doing. So let's start with um, some mail. Let's do this first one from Emma. This mail actually becomes news often these days because we've got a couple of, you know, clever listeners. And they're like, look at this study. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, Emma sent one on muscle memory. This is um, eurekaalert.org released this. It's it's about a new study. So it says muscle memory uh, discovery ends the use it or lose it dogma. Now, I... I think this is a little exaggerative, but it's interesting. (laughs) New research shows that extra nuclei gained during exercise persist even after a muscle shrinks from disuse uh, or disease or aging uh, and can be mobilized rapidly to facilitate bigger gains upon retraining. Uh, It's just neat that it brings up this muscle memory idea, which, you know, often floats around gym discussions. According to a review published in Frontiers in Physiology, Modern lab techniques allow us to see that nuclei gained during training persist, even when the muscles shrink, atrophy due to disuse, etc. These residual myonuclei allow more and faster growth when the muscles are retrained, suggesting we can quote-unquote bank muscle growth. Uh, So you can see where I'm going with this, and you guys already realize there's truth to this, of course, but whether or not it ends the use it or lose it, you know, that's the reversibility principle. I don't think that's going away anytime soon completely. Anyway, uh, says Lawrence Schwartz, professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts, by far our biggest cells are our myocytes, our muscles. Um, muscle growth is accompanied by the addition of new nuclei from stem cells to help meet the enhanced synthetic demands of these large muscle cells, explains Schwartz. Um, This led to the assumption that a given nucleus controls a defined volume of cytoplasm. And I'm I'm actually on board with that. I mean, you know, if you think about the standard textbook cell, the nucleus is in the middle, and it's going to be able to control a certain amount of cell volume, you know, the the synthetic machinery and whatnot. Um, Let's see. Some researchers have reported the presence of disintegrating nuclei in muscle tissue during atrophy or inactivity, injury, or paralysis. But modern cell-type-specific dyes and genetic markers have shown that dyeing nuclei, um, taking a closer look, they're able to detect that those disintegrating nuclei were, in fact, 
from inflammatory or, or other cells recruited into the atrophied muscle. So, in other words, kind of adjusting this idea that any, you know, degrading nuclei that have been donated to those big muscles for larger operations, um, probably it's not the degrading muscle nuclei itself. It's from other cells. So the quote here is, they're just, they want to modify this, I think, a little bit, but use it or lose it until you use it again. So that's kind of what they're kind of saying here with the muscle memory. It says the discovery that myonuclei are retained indefinitely emphasizes the importance of exercise in early life. During adolescence, muscle growth is enhanced by hormones, nutrition, and a robust pool of stem cells, making it an ideal period for individuals to quote-unquote bank myonuclei that can be drawn upon later in old age. In other words, you know, get swole again. Um and then they go on to say that mice given testosterone acquire new nuclei that do persist long after the steroid uh, use ends. So they're just talking about the idea of training when you're young and also how, how drugs do this. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Um, Phil, l- let me ask you just quickly about this. How old were you when you started, like, seriously training? Do you remember? Oh, I was – too old. I wish I'd started earlier. Um, Twenty. Okay. Yep. You know, so, I mean, I'd messed around a little bit before then, but that's when I'd say I started getting a lot more serious about it. Yeah. To be fair, when I say I started when I was thirteen, we're talking about benching plastic and cement weights off my floor. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but still, I guess there's some of that stimulus there, and uh, this really fits with my general philosophy too, right? The younger. And I'm sure when you work with younger kids, Phil, you, mm-hmm. you're thinking, I can build a base this this kid can use for the rest of her or his life, you know, as far as the muscle mass and stuff. Um, any thoughts on this, Miguel? Yeah, I mean, the, the two thoughts I have are exactly what you guys said about especially kids. And it's so hard, and I'm sure we've all done this and coached people where you're like, man, I'm trying to tell you all the stuff that I did wrong so you don't make the same mistakes I did. And everyone just seems to be sort of predisposed to kind of make their own mistakes. <laughs> I don't know if you can ever kind of get them out of that. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just like, okay, make your mistakes, but just don't injure yourself, right? You know, learn what you need to learn, but, you know, try to do it a faster way than, you know, what I did, which was horribly long, <laughs> wrong road. Um, and then also about uh, drug testing and sport, if, you know, someone is now you know, quote-unquote natural or whatever word you want to use associated with that, not using any exogenous drugs. But they did in the past for five years. Maybe that's even ten years ago. You know, in the past, we might have said, well, you know, that's out of their system. It's no big deal. And now knowing this, you're like, wow, that they still have a big advantage because of, you know, the changes that they've made to the architecture that basically gets sort of reignited once they start lifting again. Yep. That makes that all, like, super messy. Yeah. I think we can all agree, I mean, to break new ground on muscle mass takes heroic effort. Oh, but to yeah. maintain or reclaim, that's that's quite a bit easier, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. 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 Definitely. I've had plenty of guys that were like, yeah, I used to lift through my 20s and early 30s, and then they haven't now. Now they're 40, and, like, they take off fast. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like that sometimes I'll come back after uh, summer vacation and people are like, you know, Dr. Lowry, you, you look much bigger. I'm like, I, I started lifting again. I it just I don't know what to say. I got to eat and lift again, <laughs> you know, and well, I think I mean, because I I kind of like you said, built that underlying infrastructure when I was young, yeah. you know, I mean, look, look at me and I took like a two and a half year break kind of and it didn't take long to get close to back where I was. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm talking after a couple major surgeries, you know, it was all still there. It's just I was kind of just going in the gym and doing this or that, and then it was, okay, I'm going to compete again. And it came back pretty quick. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I think that actually Fortress used to talk about yeah. how it's not just muscle mass, too. You seem to put in place in a variety of systems, you know, that you can then recall upon. You know? Oh, yeah, even even mental fortitude. And, you know, just, oh, yeah. Yeah I, mean, yeah, I mean, soft tissue, nervous <clears throat> system, a, yeah. a lot of this stuff, I think, you know. Yeah. Yeah, especially in your case, Phil. I wonder how much, and you had something different because you had surgeries and different yeah. changing of vectors of loading. Yeah, you know how much of the the soft tissue and fascia that takes a lot longer to turn over 
both the pro and a con, you know, that may have stayed around and, you know, helped you to support heavier loads faster oh, yeah. than you've never done it, too. Yeah. 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 Well, and I also think, I mean, looking back now, I probably needed a two-and-a-half-year break. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it probably helped me. So, with the rest of my body. So, mm-hmm. you know. Some downtime, yeah. But. Okay. Um yeah, and you know what too? I like that, that how that article that Emma sent was about also just not just disuse but injury, like what we're saying with Phil, right? I mean, coming back from those injuries, um, also sort of a scenario to consider with the muscle memory. So, um, this next one was pretty complicated. This is Natalia. Um, she says, "My name is Natalia. I was studying for one of my nutrition classes and read uh, your article, Dietary Fats and Sports Nutrition." To further understand how dietary fats are broken down in our organism, she says, in order to provide the necessary energy when glycogen depletion occurs. So I'm trying to remember. I think this is an article I wrote for the NSCA Sports Nutrition book. Anyway, um, I was a little confused if plasma-free fatty acids or muscle triglyceride storage or both would exhibit increased use – if exercise continues after glycogen depletion. Uh, This is a a topic of study in my exam review, uh, and this is the only one that really confused me. I thought both might be increased, in other words, drawing on blood fats, right, fatty acids, and what's stored in the muscle when you're glycogen depleted. Uh, I was hoping you could help me figure this out. I'm studying for this exam. (laughs) Thank you, Natalia. So this is what I replied, and then... You know, Mike, you're really interested in, like, you know, fuel selector switches and metabolic flexibility and everything. So I said – first I said, are you an Iron Radio listener? Because this sounds like something one of our, you know, nerdier listeners might say. But she's not. She's just a student. But it says – well, I said, either way, it depends on a few things. If you go back to some of the older papers in the 70s through the 90s, uh, intramuscular triglyceride breakdown or you know hydrolysis and free fatty acid oxidation, they depend on a few things. One, obviously, your fitness level, right, because trained aerobic athletes are going to be better at using intramuscular triglycerides, and that's going to make them less reliant on the blood-borne fatty acids. Um, muscle fiber type. And that's kind of linked to training status. But, um, you know, type 1 fibers have more metabolic machinery to use intramuscular fat. Um, initial fatty acid concentrations in the blood play a role, right, of how much fatty acids you draw from the blood. Depends on what's there to begin with uh, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, I attached two studies about glycogen de- depletion and the proportions of intramuscular fat droplets versus blood-derived uh, fat oxidation. So I said uh, the short answer is that both intramuscular and serum-derived fat oxidation would probably increase in a low glycogen state. Um, but honestly, I'd have to read up on work by guys like Asker Jukendrup, you know, the guys who love to, to delve into this stuff, uh, or even talk to you, Mike. Um, but I said to me the distinction isn't critical from a body composition perspective. I mean, whether it's drawn from your blood or burned from those you know oil droplets essentially within muscle, um, because the – when you think about the whole body economy, you know, of energy balance and, and fat status, um, there would – either way, there's going to be a reduction in body fatness. Again, if you think from a body composition standpoint um, because of overall, you know, again, uh, energy balance or fat balance and economy. Um, Mike, what do you think on this? I mean do you think it really matters where you draw the fats from <clears throat> or training in a low – if you're on a low-carb diet and you use up your muscle glycogen – uh, what's your thought about where the fat burning comes from and does it matter? Yeah, a couple things on that. So <clears throat> one of the things is that if you just do a overnight fast, you actually deplete liver glycogen, but you don't really touch muscle glycogen at all. Yep. Uh, if you can fast for 48, 72 hours, unless you're doing a lot of muscular work, muscle glycogen doesn't really even go down. So yep. if you try to do muscle glycogen depletion specifically, if anyone's done that, it's horrendously horrible, and it's not fun. It's a lot of muscular work. And then on top of it, usually on most of the studies, the sleep low, train high, and the different ones like Marquette's done that, yeah. Luis Burke has done some. They usually come back the next day, maybe they give them a little protein, and then they just beat the snot out of them again. So to get to that point is very brutal. Um, so you probably have some immune system, a bunch of other stuff going on. In terms of where it comes from, I I would agree with you, and the caveat being 
I don't know if we entirely know for sure. Just trying to do those studies, tracer studies and things like that are really hard. Yeah. Um, initially, they said, ah, you know, intermuscular triglycerides aren't used much. And they took snapshots from people who were not athletes and said, oh, my gosh, look at this. There's, you know, fat droplets in the muscle. Insulin is all screwed up. Oh, it's a horrible idea. And they take the same snapshot from an athlete, and they're like, yeah, this athlete's going to be screwed up. Look at all those intermuscular triglycerides. And they're like, oh, wait, they're not. They're fine. It's a, it's a good <laughs> thing in them. Right. Yeah. And so then they realize that it's the turnover and how much you're basically running fuel through that system that probably matters the most. There's been some other arguments that because it's next to the muscle that the use of local fat is probably faster and easier. That's been kind of debated also. So I don't know if we really know. Uh, for body composition, probably doesn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue there's probably easier ways to, to get to that. Um, but I have used it in some athletes. We're really trying to upregulate the use of fat. And we're specifically trying to, when we replate them with carbohydrates, we're trying to get enhanced carbohydrate use from you know, upregulation of, you know, CS and other enzymes and things like that. Um, but even those studies, you only want to do something like that in a highly advanced athlete in the offseason. And the studies right now are still even split how much of that is even uh, beneficial. Yeah. So it's a it's a good question, and I think hopefully we'll have more info in the future, but for now, I would I would tend to agree with you on that. Yeah, I, I'm like I said, I I just think from a practical viewpoint, body comp, even performance, I'm not sure it's going to be a dram- it matters that much. It's just not yeah, going to be that dramatic, no. you know. More um, of an academic thing. Yeah, from yeah. a mechanistic point of view. Yeah, I I brought it up because I think it might be worthwhile for listeners to realize that you don't just store fat in your adipose tissue, like in your love handles, but you know you have a couple hundred grams of these oil droplets in muscle tissue, and it can uh, be confusing. Like you said, diabetics have too much intramuscular triglyceride droplets, um, but then so do high-end aerobic athletes, so for very different reasons. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. And stuff, that's, the, that's the one thing I do have some reservations about, uh, like a ketogenic diet on someone who may not be super healthy, because even in people who are healthy, that does appear to change the insulin uh, sensitivity of the muscle at that level, what's called a non-pathological muscle insulin resistance because carbohydrates are so low in the system, the muscle doesn't want to take them up, so it can spare more of them for the brain. That doesn't appear to be a negative thing in terms of health that we know of, but on the flip side, if you just inject a whole bunch of fat and you overload the muscle with a bunch of fat, you get buildup of ceramides, lipotoxicity, and you screw with the local insulin sensitivity again, too. Mm -hmm. So you're always kind of walking this sort of fine balancing act. Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, let me get to one more before we go to break. Uh, and I really want to hear Phil's rubber hits the road out um, take on this. But mm. this is a new study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. So arguably the highest impact, you know, high-end nutrition journal from Jeremy Cross, C-R-O-S, and colleagues. Uh, impact of sleep restriction on metabolic outcomes induced by overfeeding. A randomized control trial in healthy individuals. So this is brand new stuff from this year. Um, it says overconsumption of energy dense foods and sleep restriction are both associated with the development of metabolic and cardiovascular diseases, but their combined effects remain poorly evaluated. Now, right off the bat, I'm thinking they're just thinking general health and heart disease, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking what about overeating powerlifters or bulking bodybuilders? who aren't getting enough sleep, is it going to somehow screw something up, right? So I'm kind of twisting this to our ends. Um, The objective of this study was to assess whether sleep restriction potentiates the effects of short-term overfeeding on basically fatty liver, uh, intrahepatocellular lipid, they say. So uh, basically fatty liver and glucose metabolism. Uh, They took 10 healthy subjects. They exposed them to six days of overfeeding. They were eating 130% of their needs. So 30% above normal, um, and they were taking the extra calories as sugars and fats, and they actually had them sleep normally for eight hours or sleep restricted, where they only let them sleep four hours. Um, Anyway, the results, overfeeding significantly increased uh, liver fat, right, fatty liver, 
and during an oral glucose tolerance test, right, so they challenged them with some carbs, uh, and overfeeding significantly increased their hepatic glucose production. So again, it's just sort of suggesting a little bit of um, resistance here, you know, poorer carbohydrate metabolism, if you will. Um, and then this is interesting. Compared with overfeeding alone, overfeeding plus sleep restriction did not change fatty liver, did not change the, you know, the fat droplets in the liver cells. It did not change endogenous glucose production. Um, it says sleep restriction did not significantly alter blood pressure, heart rate, or plasma cortisol, right, the stress hormone. So they conclude that six days of a higher calorie diet you know, with the extra calories from sucrose and fat, it did significantly increase uh, fatty liver and gl glucose production, suggesting hepatic insulin resistance. Um, but the effects of overfeeding uh, were not altered by sleep restriction. So f that's what I wanted to ask you, Phil. If, if we turn this toward our own ends, right, mm -hmm. um, do you find that – I mean you get up early and all that kind of stuff. If you're mm -hmm. under sleeping, are you still going to plow through the grub and try to gain weight and not change your diet strategy? Because uh, this suggests that it kind of doesn't matter if you – Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the only reason I'm doing it is for a goal. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm doing it from meat. So, I mean, and I'll be honest with you, it has nothing to do with health. Yeah. Like, I felt like at the meet, I felt like I was about four weeks away from bypass surgery. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> that's just the truth. And that's why I don't do this a year round, you know, because I know I can't. Like, right now, yeah. I've dropped 30 pounds. Um, and I'm going to stay down this way till about next August, and then I'll start eating my way up. So I spend a significant portion of the year not doing that because I know it's better for me. <laughs> right, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, if I I, I got to get up and got to get my work done, I got to eat because I got to meet on this day at this time. So mm. there's no break. How many so, hours How many hours of sleep do you think you get on average? Do you get seven uh, oh. or eight or no? No, I won't get seven or eight. I'll get – I get two wonderful days a week where I get to sleep in. Um and then uh, my average is probably six, six and a half. Mm -hmm. So yeah. on like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. And then because uh, I got to be up at four thirty, but I don't get out of the gym till seven forty-five at night. So I still got to go home, eat, mess with the kids, blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. blah you know. So it's interesting to me okay. that they took they took healthy guys and basically induced a certain state that looks like pre-diabetes almost. You yeah. know, um, just, oh, I'm sure my lipids were all messed up, man. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was only six days. And I think that's something you got to consider as well. You know, yeah, this is exactly. pretty short term. Six days and yeah. 13 weeks. So. Okay. Of eating up. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think normally when you see fatty liver and that kind of stuff, it's in sedentary people who eat, you know, crappy diets and, you know, they're, they are, they have metabolic syndrome, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And it's just an interesting twist on it, right? When, you know, does overeating for you, and let's pretend that you're young, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh. is that going to be dramatically different because of the other ways that you live, you know, uh, e even than these healthy guys, that they just overfed. I mean, I would think I have no evidence at all, but I have to think, you know, uh, me going in squatting and pulling 700 pounds routinely. Um, and all the work it takes to get up to that and do that has to have some kind of benefit over the average person, right. even the average healthy individual. Mm -hmm. I would think, but at the same time, I'm still not stupid enough to, I will never tell anybody it's good for me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm doing, this, yeah. I'm doing this for my health. You know, you can feel it. Yeah, it's yeah, oh yeah, especially I can feel it more now than like 15 years ago. I'd be like, "Oh, I'll just eat like this year round." But uh mm -hmm. yeah, not anymore. Not anymore. I mean, I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. so. Uh Mike, any any thoughts about overfeeding, you know, 30% above needs and fatty liver and whether or not sleep's going to affect a bulking phase? Yeah, I mean, I I was a little surprised in the study. I probably expected there to be more worse effects, but the more I try to look at, you know, insulin and glucose regulation and all that kind of stuff, the more I'm like, I don't even know if I know anything anymore. Um, I just think it's way more complicated than what I was taught for sure. Um, and it appears like the liver, I think of the liver when I teach is just, it's just think of it as kind of a massive buffer, right? The liver can luckily take a lot of abuse 
if you do something crazy like this study, you're probably going to see changes in the liver first. Um, but over time, if those stay persistent, then you start seeing more, you know, whole body uh, changes. So there's some other work that I looked at years ago thinking that, well, maybe we can change like insulin uh, resistance and make fat cells more resistant to insulin, right? And try to prevent the body from shoving fat into fat droplets. I finally found a knockout mouse study where they did that. But then what happened was all the fats backed up into the liver and into the bloodstream and they were just a metabolic wreck. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's kind of no physiologic free lunch. It's just what does the study look at and what are the changes? And like you guys said, this is a very short-term study for a week. Um, what would happen, you know, you have clients and people, myself in the past, who are chronically sleep-deprived for years you know, doing this. And that's a, a very different time scale too. Yeah. Well, I mean, this also ignores our body's amazing ability to adapt, you know? Oh, totally. Like if yeah. somebody tra trains for six days, they're not going to see a lot of change. Yeah. Now, I mean, couldn't it be a case of uh, six days of your liver getting bombarded like this? It's like, oh, okay, well, it's six days. Over time, I mean, one would expect like your metabolism is going to ramp up over time. When I start eating, I'll gain weight right away, and then all of a sudden, my metabolism catches on fire. Mm -hmm. um, one would think the liver would be like, "Oh crap, this guy's doing this all the time. We need to up our production of, you know, <laughs> yeah. hey, we need to work harder, get this stuff out of here." Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, yeah it so. is amazing to me how, uh, on both sides of the spectrum, I'm constantly just amazed at how resilient the body is, and if you're an elite athlete, how some of the small things matter just because the performance changes are so small. But on the other end of the spectrum, the fact that, you know, someone whose you know, butt's been welded to the couch could eat, you know, 7-Eleven Slurpee with no ice, and their body can even process that, and they don't go into a yeah. diabetic coma. Yeah. That's just fascinating. Me too. <laughs> Me too, man. Yeah, I agree. Like, how does that not kill you? You know, <laughs> like there's nothing in nature where you can stumble into like no. 200 grams of sucrose, you know, <laughs> or almost yeah. nothing. And you're massively insulin resistant, all the bad stuff. But yet, hey, you know, you still make it for years. So that's, yeah. that's just fascinating. You know, to uh, Phil's point about adaptation and whatnot and about being, you know, comparing a lifter to somebody who's just quote unquote healthy. I mean, if we accept that muscle tissue is the primary healthy recipient of blood glucose, right, you simply have more muscle mass to deposit the carbohydrates in, you know, and that's yeah. going to change the inter-organ, you know, dynamics and all that too, you know, so just larger mammal. Yeah, you have a um, – I explain it to students as the more muscle you have, you just have this massive sink of which to dispose more glucose. So not only yeah. are you more are you burning more calories overall because you're just a larger mammal – but you actually have an area. It's like opening the drain on your bathtub to get more water out. If you have a bigger drain, yeah. you're able to get rid of more of that faster. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, that's what we – the guest that was on a couple of weeks ago said, you know, a, a large increase in muscle mass had very little to do with resting metabolic rate. But, you know, how much are we actually totally resting? You know, when I'm just walking at 293 pounds, I'm using a lot more than the – 180 pound guy yeah all, all day long it's a lot of effort that's that's what i notice when i'm up it's like whoo here comes a flight of stairs let's go <laughs> you know? brace yourself you know? and you get up and your legs are on fire and you know i'm, I'm using all this stuff so right and well. you know i think a lot of our listeners i think it was this is something that was immediately apparent to me but when you think about it the, like you're saying the physics of it is real that is one of the corrective preventers of of weight gain is that when you carry around 20, 30, 40 more pounds all day long, you burn more calories all day long. Okay. So now you've got to eat even more to compensate for the additional calorie expenditure, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Assuming you're just as active, because some people I think who are not lifters gain a lot of weight, their activity doesn't keep going up, right? So they're not really having to move more of that around just because they're not moving as much. So Yeah. Well, I think that kind of comes back to, you know, when we say uh, you've got to learn to be lazy on some level when you're trying to gain enormous amounts of weight, like for, you know, for lifting purposes and whatnot. You can't run around like like a chicken with your head cut off, yeah. you know, because <laughs> the bigger you get, you know, I mean, Jesus, your calorie output would just be huge. So you've got to try to take some downtime. You know, yeah. so. All right. Can we touch on one more thing before – 
break yeah, because oh, yeah. it's something that numerous listeners have asked us to put uh, our, our two cents in on. USAPL last week came out and just – they had to make a decision on the trans athlete thing. And they decided their position is just uh, you cannot compete. Hmm. So um, they were very scientific in their answers and of why, though. I mean, so basically through analysis, the impact of maturation in the presence of naturally occurring androgen levels necessary for male development, significant advantages are had, including but not limited to body and muscle mass, bone density, bone structure, and connected tissue. These advantages are not eliminated by reduction of serum androgens such as testosterone yielding potential advantage in strength sports such as powerlifting. Um, so basically they went against the International Olympic Committee because they feel uh, that you do have an advantage for the, the male to female. Mm-hmm. And everybody's up in arms over this. Uh, really? Oh, God. It's Yeah, there's in the powerlifting community, there's there's... Both sides are just yelling at each other. Oh. And what I see is a lot of emotional stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. My take is it's a sport. It's not life. The USA Powerlifting is an organization that has the right to choose. Just like the NCAA, if you take too much caffeine, you're banned. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So why – I mean, and I deal with trans athletes uh, from both sides. I have family members that are. And I can tell you – uh, my stance that I talk to people is like I have one client that is a, a female to male and uh, he will never just from what I've seen he's not going to match the men on the platform despite his now increased engine levels um, mm-hmm. and if if all that differentiated us was androgens or just hormones why isn't somebody like who's who's blatantly on talks about it like uh, let's say Laura Phelps West Side Lifter, she is on massive amounts of of stuff. I can't tell you exact milligrams, but it's very obvious. Yeah, she will never match pound for pound a man. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, of course she beats all the women, but let's say she's one eighty one. She's not mid matching men that are on the same levels of of, of androgen use that, that she is. There's got to be something more planned there, and I thought their their answer was pretty pretty spot on and scientific in general. When you remove emotions from this, you know, and I think that's the issue is a lot of people come out with their emotions like, oh yeah, let them do it. Yeah, but come on, right? <laughs> right. Know, I mean, this 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 girl has been living her life for 23 years as a man, and now she's a woman, and we're supposed to let her come and compete against my women. At a USAPL is a non-drugged organization, like none allowed yeah. for anybody. Uh, there's other federations out there, you know, is my take. It's like if that's the, you know, if you're not, nobody's banning you from the sport. You're banned from this specific organization. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that that's my take. What do you guys say from a scientific point of view? I mean, I would say from a, a scientific point of view, not ethics or anything else in there. I, I mean, I would tend to agree with the USAPL because if you, if you fast forward and let's say they they are allowed, right, and especially an organization that is drug tested, that is their thing. Oh, what if they all start winning, and then you're like, oh, it's because of you know enhanced androgens and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. I think that's a worse place to to be in, and like you said, you're not you're not discriminating people for their choice or anything like that. You're just saying, no. hey, for this organization, here are our rules, and if you want to play with our organization, then that's kind of the the deal. So well, I mean, for God's sake, <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm. Well, I mean, in powerlifting, you don't get to deadlift unless you're wearing the right socks. Right. You know, it's a rule. That's <laughs> all. You know. USAPL me by wearing the wrong underwear. Yes, exactly. You I'm can't like, wear... are you kidding? <laughs> one, of my lifters, one of my lifters can't wear a strength guild shirt with a strength guild logo on it because I don't exactly. pay them money. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a sport. It's not life is what I get at. It's not life. They have the right, and if you don't like it, don't support them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you guys, I mean, there's a whole field of the sociology of sport oh, and how yeah. it doesn't pan out to regular life. I mean, think about a hockey game 
that would equal assault charges out on the street, right? Oh, yeah. You can't oh, just assault totally. someone. And yet if it's part of a game, it's looked yeah. at a little differently. I'm not saying it's okay yeah. to, you know, <laughs> but everything is biopsychosocial, I remind myself. And I side on the bio with this. Like I think like you guys yeah. and, and the organization, right? Like this harkens back to Emma's email, I think, about increased um, – myonuclei, you know, through all, an yeah. entire youth yes. of being one gender or another yes. and muscle memory. And so I appreciate the psychosocial aspects of this and some of the social justice issues of this. But I, I don't think you could ignore the biology. If the, no. if the machine has been conditioned and grown over years to be one way and now you, you're, you know, you, like you said, it's not as simple just like in that study, that muscle memory study, yes, testosterone yeah. can increase myonuclei, but there are other things at work here. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't act alone. You can't say, here's a shot of testosterone, you're a dude. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, just, when yeah. it comes to biology, like, you know, the underlying biology that's been developed for years and years, mm -hmm. you know. And that's, yeah, that's exactly. So I figured we better. I've had like six people reach out. Like, yeah. What's your take? Are you guys doing that on the show this week? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's a tough issue. And like you said, oh, yeah. probably get some hate mail. But I mean, you can't ignore science, and there's lots of science on it. You know that that weren't. And that's not saying men are better than women. We're different, and that's no. okay. That it's okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think what women are doing in powerlifting right now is freaking amazing, and they're doing more oh, than ever. Yeah. But uh, it's yeah, it's a tough issue, but. You know. It is. I think almost we'd we'd have to bring in a, a sports sociologist, or you know, or a sports psychologist, or something like that, or some social justice person. I actually know a couple, and say, you know, what's your thought on this? You know, is yeah. because yeah, I mean, we're pretty open. My bias, to use a, a phrase from Doctor Nelson, you know, my bias is usually <laughs> biological. And that's yeah. that's where I'm coming from with this. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I don't know. It, it's like the issue of having gender neutral bathrooms and that kind of stuff. It's just a it's just an incendiary topic, you know, and it's just tough. It's again, it's so multifaceted. Well, and in my opinion, in rules of, for sports, you have to approach it from that view. You can't approach yeah. it from an emotional point of view. I don't like fighting, so it shouldn't be allowed in hockey. No, it's part of the game. You know? <laughs> Don't go to a you UFC match then. Yeah. Exactly. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. No. Right. Oh, that's what. Yeah. So <laughs> good one. I mean, yeah. It's uh, it's you have to re remove your emotions from this and look at the 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 facts. Right. <laughs> well, the reason we are different. I I think like when I bring up gender neutral bathrooms and stuff, because that's a big controversy on my campus right now. Because you're mm -hmm. thinking about all of the infrastructure and investment to do this sort of thing. And but I mean, I'm not sure how to best deal with this issue. Do you have um, a third category that's for? Because you'd almost have to think it, it's almost directional from male to female, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Versus female to male. Yeah. Um, and do you have? Uh, you know, divisions or, or, or flights of those people. I, it's um, it's sort of an administrative challenge, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, in powerlifting, the tough part is about that. Let's say you do just add another division, you'll have to add two new right. divisions, right? And they'll be like, at most meets, you might have one, one? signed up, you yeah. know, maybe. So now you got a meet director that's having to have a whole other division for uh, one or two people. Tough. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. hopefully. Right, hopefully, you know, right. Otherwise, most meets yeah. none. Right. So, yeah, you you bought the trophies and everything, and then you know it's almost like women's bodybuilding was, you know, yeah. like oh, there's yeah. there's no competitors. Yeah. This time, you know, it, yeah, it's like I said, it's, I think it's an administrative challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, Whoa! And, wow. I, well, that's I can't for where they there. went, but I mean, it's it's their choice, you know, and they're gonna they're either gonna get a bad PR over it or good PR, but either, regardless, it's their choice. So they are yeah. an independent organization that has the right to do that. So yeah, I mean the, the rule set, the rules have to be reductionist in some way, right? A sport is a yeah. microcosm, kind of what you're saying of the of of life. You know, it has to be reduced down to we, we just guys, we have to come up with rules that you operate within. You know, in order to have a sport at all, and yeah, it, it just it, it throws. I mean, a, let's. It emotionally pains me to wear long socks. I need crew socks. So I, you guys need to change the rules. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, I got to put on long freaking socks to lift. Mm -hmm. You know? So. Right. Again, yeah, to comply with that yeah. reductionist 
rule set. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, let's do this. Let's go to break. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute, everybody. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. And we're back. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens. And for this segment, we're talking about what we have eaten this past week and what supplements we have used. Do you want to kick it off, Lonnie, with what you've been doing lately? Uh, I could. And I, and I hope that listeners, again, this is sort of a stimulus to think about what you've been doing and why, you know. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, one thing that jumps out is on Thursday, uh, I didn't eat. <laughs> uh, I, I just I filled up a big container of you know of of dairy proteins, you know, and I just sipped on it throughout the day. So I can't say I didn't eat at all. Um, but I kind of did one of those days where you know I just I realized I needed to lean down a little bit, you know, because I mean not like. I wasn't up there like Phil, <laughs> but I, I was carrying extra fat. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to – I just feel like I need to do something a little dramatic. Um, who was it, Phil, the, the in powerlifting that said the blast or dust mentality? Was that Jerry? That's Dave. That's Dave, Dave. Oh, yep. Dave, yeah. 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 Um, and it's kind of like that. You know, th- this is – for me, it wasn't the time for some small little tweak. It was the blast approach, which is nothing. <laughs> almost nothing you know so instead of drinking coffee while i was teaching classes all morning i mean i did a little bit of that um but it was you know just the dilute protein drink and again just sort of dramatic way to deal with that and then the next day i just went back to sort of you know normal eating patterns kind of thing um but that's one of the things that i did this past week as far as foods go i mean if we if we keep supplements till the next question um i, I think that's probably the most dramatic thing that that i did at least I don't know. What about you, Phil? Like, you're out from under the calorie burden. I am. I am. As of this is two weeks, a full two weeks out of it. 
So basically, after the meet, I was eating, I don't know how much. It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't count this time. We've counted before, and I was up over 10,000 calories a day. Oh, my God. Uh, but I didn't calculate it this time. So basically, I was having meals and then meals in between meals. Is meals with meals. Yeah, basically, I just I have one meal a day when I'm in meat mode. <laughs> it just doesn't. It starts when I wake up and ends when I go to sleep. <laughs> An eight hour meal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, basically, I get a break from that, and it's awesome. And oh, I do this almost after every meet. So basically, I go automatically to a a very low carbohydrate diet because I've been shoveling just. A lot of not good food in. Yeah. So I have my I have my usual three good meals, and then I just grab whatever I can at the gas station or whatever on the way to the gym. So lots of like microwave burritos and pot pies, this and that, and this and that. So um, basically, I just give myself a reset after every meet, and for a month, I'll just go on a very low carbohydrate diet, um, and then after that month, transition back into more regular eating. So I add some rice and vegetables, this and that, and this and that, starches and. So right now I'm two weeks into the low-carb thing, and like I was telling you guys early in the show in the introductions, like my heavest right before the meet was 293, and I weighed in at 263 today. So Unreal. I lifted at the meet. At the meet, I was 287. So mm-hmm. that's still a significant, significant decrease in body weight. Oh, yeah. And much is just bloated. You know, I yeah. was probably carrying around 10 pounds of poop. But <laughs> <laughs> the time for the and, meat cleanse. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure I can tell you this. If I tried to go squat 700 pounds, I'd probably be in a lot of trouble right now. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, People don't understand that, how just I can take an athlete and make them eat more for a week, like a significant amount more, and let's go for a squat PR, and it's going to go up, Mm -hmm. you know, if they significantly add body weight. Interesting, uh, yeah. uh, It's just tissue around the joints and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at. I'm eating lots of meat and fats and nuts and things like that. So You know, Phil, I, I'm curious, behaviorally, you know, people often say low-carb diets are really a challenge to get used to and everything. I bet for you, it's almost a breath of fresh air. Oh, it's it's wonderful. It's a, <laughs> and I get so tired. It's like I, I don't want to look at a donut for a while Yeah, and things like that. And it's like it was my birthday yesterday. The wife's like, you want cake? Nope, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> you know, yeah. I had enough. The last the last four months, that's all I had was whatever I wanted. So yeah. it got to the point where I didn't want any of it. So because I had so much, you know, Phil. But, there's uh, there's a joke in my family. We we used to watch. I don't know if, if you guys. This is really nerdy, but when when my son was young, we'd watch Jimmy Neutron, the little boy scientist, right? So there's an oh, episode yeah. where they could rewind the clock, and so they kept reliving his birthday, so they could eat birthday cake, birthday cake, birthday <laughs> cake, and then toward the ev- end of the episode, they look at his mom and they say, "Mrs. Neutron, can we just have some carrot sticks?" <laughs> so that's like what you're yeah. saying, you know? <laughs> it is. And I, I mean, I literally, I get to the point where I'm I'm just done i don't want to eat and uh and that's where i was at so it's nice to i don't think i just i walk in the kitchen and i grab something that used to walk you know right. i eat it yeah. so, <laughs> so um yeah. mike what about you i mean tra- did travel affect it or what what jumps out in your mind about something you ate yeah so pretty different i was down in uh, baja uh la ventana mexico last week and went down there on a kiteboarding trip and we had good wind for two and a half days and the wind just literally kind of shut off so that was kind of a bummer but if if i go out and ride uh, the running joke kiteboarding is that i'll i'll go out and ride and then people will go in and go out and come in and go out and i'm usually still out there (laughs) (laughs) so i'll i'll go ride for two two and a half three hours at a time sometimes um and then when i come in if my little reward was if it was a, a good session, I'll have two pop tarts because um, I usually bring them with because they're they're pretty bulletproof. Nothing bad's gonna happen to them. The frosting doesn't even melt. You can leave them sit out in the sun and nothing nothing happens to them. So just a very easy high caloric travel food per se. And then the resort we were at, they had a uh, breakfast and lunch. So breakfast was just you know eggs or huevos rancheros or whatever they had. And then lunch was usually some type of fish that they caught, a little bit of rice and a salad. So I purposely had probably lower amounts of calories than what I would normally have. And then in the evening was, eh, we may eat there, we may we may go out. We went out to one place, and God, we must have ate food for like two hours. 
spend two hours there. So uh, eating at night was sometimes a little bit more. And then normally I would fast from, you know, overnight till I wouldn't eat breakfast till a little bit later the next morning. So I would get up and do some meditation and they didn't really have workout equipment down there. So I just started doing more cardiovascular. So I, you know, go for a run each morning and walk around and then I would have some coffee and then I would have breakfast later. So I'd probably have about a 12 hour fast, uh, overnight. So it's a little bit different than the norm, but I, I tried to set it up this time instead of being hyper worried about everything, just, yeah, you know, I, I got enough protein, you know, the calories are probably a little bit lower, which was done on purpose. And I came back and I weighed the exact same weight as when I left and I was gone for, for eight days. So yeah. I was happy with that. Homeostasis, baby. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, one food that I ate, this might be informative for listeners, is normally uh, I get this like mis- pre-cooked mesquite chicken breast stuff and I'll eat it at lunch, you know. And it's easy actually to, to eat a quote-unquote clean diet. I don't know what a loaded word that is, but um, I, I'm a captive audience. If I take stuff like you know, colored bell pepper, like the mini little colored peppers and carrots and and a chicken breast for lunch to work. That's all I've got. So that's what I eat. So it's actually easy to comply. (laughs) Um, But one of the things I did this week that might be interesting is uh, I switched out chicken for fake crab meat. I don't know if you've seen this stuff. You can even get it at discount grocers now. And you know what really stuns me about that shit is is (laughs) it's carbohydrate. There's more mm-hmm. carbohydrate sure. than there is protein in it. I mean, oh, wow. I'm like, this is like, like Phil says, this is something that's, it was supposed to have been walking at some point. You know, <laughs> it shouldn't be carbohydrate. This should be protein, and yeah. there is some protein in it. Uh, and I knew what I was getting into actually after I had looked, bought it, looked at the package and everything. So I would just, I swig down some of this like. Um, it's almost a protein water. It's just a real low-dose protein kind of shake. It's not milky. It's more juicy kind of thing uh, as the beverage with it. But, yeah, the fake crab, it's not a one-for-one equivalent. You actually have to boost the protein content of the meal because it seems oh, wow. like meat, but it's not. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's talk about supplements just as we start to wind down or even purposeful anything um, that you you know you went after for a reason – Phil, can you think of anything supplemental or otherwise that I'm taking right now? Yeah, that you did this past week. Yeah, I take vitamin D twice a day, um, and vitamin C, and yeah, before I train, I guess you could call it a supplement. Advil. So <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. A staple. But, uh, it's winter. We get into we try and take vitamin D in the winter and things like that, just in case. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's enough data on vitamin D. You know, whether it's through – I know it, a lot of this depends on initial levels and, and whatnot, but whether it's, you know, some of these vague le- links that keep cropping up with testosterone production or just muscle strength in general, you know, there's some interesting research. I think vitamin D – I guess my point is the metabolic effects reach beyond just bone health, you know, when people mm-hmm. think vitamin D being a bone vitamin and whatnot. That's one of the ones I actually do too. I've been taking 4,000 – I, I kind of go back and forth, 2,000 or 4,000. I use a vitamin D this time of year, just sort of randomly, you know. Um, it's funny. I also do the vitamin C. Um, since I blew up my left knee running, of all things, a couple of years ago, I'm really trying to prolong the life of that joint. I'll take a 250-milligram vitamin C. I, I like the lower-dose stuff with some glucosamine, chondroitin, and then I actually drink it down with bone broth, you know, to try to just get some collagen in my body. And then when I'm running around all morning, I'm just kind of hoping that that uh, some something in there <laughs> embeds in the, <laughs> my damaged, you know, um, meniscus in my left knee, I guess. Mm-hmm. Plus everywhere else. I mean, that's just uh, one that jumps out pretty much all all up and down my spine um, and almost every joint in my body. <laughs> I'm hoping for some incorporation of that. But that's one of the supplements that I've been doing, sort of the combination of a C with the glucosamine chondroitin and the – you know, a bone broth is just sort of a cheap ass collagen replacement thing. Um, yeah. How about you, Miguel? Uh, a couple of things are a little bit different. Is uh, normally most mornings, if I'm doing on work stuff, I'll take a nootropic. So I've been using right now Qualia uh, Mind, which is pretty expensive, but it's. I mean, I think in terms of nootropics, there's not a ton of data, but um, but I really like that one. And then a tip I got from uh, Tom Inclanon is uh, taking it, and then I'll go do my meditation stuff 
And then I'll do some type of cardiovascular exercise about 30 to 60 minutes after. And his theory, which I haven't seen any direct data on, but kind of makes sense, is that you're increasing blood flow with cardiovascular exercise to the brain, which we know that happens, especially hippocampal area, mm-hmm. and that maybe you get a better delivery of nootropics because of the increased uh, blood flow at that same time. Delivery, yeah. So, yeah. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I was going to you know, try and do more cardiovascular stuff in the morning anyway. Um, yeah, so I seem, seem to like that. It seems to help a little bit, which could be placebo, but so at home I'll, I'll do that and then get on the rower when i was in mexico i just you know did a run in the morning and then i was in boulder a couple of weeks ago i did take a lot more fish oil and vitamin d at that point i just picked some up at the store there and then in mexico i usually don't bring much fish oil with because it's just kind of a hard to travel with per se you can get yeah. the capsules but uh and you know half life is super long so i don't worry too much about that um, the only thing different is i did add something called astaxanthine which is the red carotenoid that's found like in the, well, it wouldn't be in your artificial seafood, but in real seafood, that's the red kind of color. They make it from a red algae plant in Hawaii. And there's some data showing that it may help protect uh, skin from ultraviolet. And I tend to be a very uh, white northern descent person, so I tend to burn pretty easy in sun. So I usually will start taking that before I go anywhere in a sunnier climate, especially off-season, especially when it's winter in Minnesota. Um, so I took that when I was down there, and then when I travel, I'll take a few more uh, medicinal mushrooms. So this time I was just taking uh, reishi and a turkey tail. So I'll take that at night with a little bit more uh, magnesium. Interesting. That's that the only differences. And um, yeah, I've been, I, there's some pretty good data on reishi in terms of uh, immune function. So that's something to really feel per se, um, but in terms of you know travel and exposure to other areas, and especially getting on you know flying germ tubes and that kind of stuff. Totally. It, yeah, well, seems to help. That's interesting that you said that. I I swapped out one of my triple strength fish oils for a krill with astaxanthin. Um, oh yeah. So yeah. just you know because again, there's enough interesting stuff about. You know that pigment. Not to mention the the slight differences. One thing you got to be careful. I think with the krill oil, though, is even though they say, "Oh, it's you know, it's phospholipid derived and it's more absorbable right. and this and that." Okay, but God, the dose is low in those little pills. Very low. Very low. Like a hundred milligrams of total omega threes, or hundred and fifty. And I'm like, yeah. whoa. Now, so yeah. I, I, so that's why I replaced only one <laughs> of my usual, you know, large fish oil uh, capsules, gel caps with one of those. But I thought, yeah, you get a little bit of the the additional, you know, call it antioxidant support or whatever you want um, in a little bit different type. I, I think variety is, is a good rule of thumb with food and, you know, supplements and stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting that you're doing that. Um, although you're taking that specifically, right, by itself, not as part of a krill or anything else. Yeah, I take it specifically just because in krill oil, the amount of astaxanthin is, like, really, really Low. small. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tend to take a higher dose of usually around 10 milligrams daily for a week before and then the week of. And I don't know. I mean, it it seems to help, but yeah. maybe it's just because I've been out in the sun a little bit more overall the past couple of years, too. So, um, but yeah, similar to you, I think rotating some of those things through that I don't have a lot of exposure to in my diet every once in a while is probably going to be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it's not something I take year-round all the time, though. Right, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, just as browsing through the literature, I, it, apparently you've it, experienced the same thing. It just doesn't go away. You keep hearing this no, stuff about, you know, some of the benefits. The yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. We're pretty much out of time. Cool. There we go. All right, we'll see everybody next time. See you next week. All right, see ya. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. 
uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.